Welcome to the What A Pain podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. And how are you, Conrad? I'm very well, Glyn. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Um, we're continuing our journey around beautiful cities of England, and we're in Oxford today in your home turf. And we've come to interview your colleagues, Anne-Marie S. and Julia Smith. And we're doing a podcast today about physical therapy and occupational therapy. Very excited about that. I really enjoy working with these colleagues and really value them. So this is our third podcast. Uh, we've published the first two, and it's been lovely to see that we've found a few people from actually quite a few different countries listening to us, which is gratifying, surprising, but very gratifying. And I hope people are finding it okay. Have we had any feedback yet? We had a lovely response on Twitter, actually, to the publication of our podcast. So one Twitter follower said the following, my burnout was confused with addiction issues until I finally ended up in pain management and diagnosed. I don't use opioids today. These discussions are wonderful and great to hear how you reflect how you approach chronic pain in young autistic women. Well, that's, that is really nice feedback. And it sums up the last podcast very nicely, doesn't it? Where we dealt with both those subjects, opioids and, um, and autism. And if we've managed to help someone or just give someone a nice reflection of what they've been through that's a that's a really comforting thing and hopefully it will encourage more people to sort of get in touch with us and let us know either their stories or their thoughts on what we've been talking about and please email us on whatapainpodcast at gmail.com so anyway today conrad we're we're going to do it slightly differently aren't we maybe the first two podcasts we've had have been quite reflective uh, especially the one with jeremy you know looking at specific topic and looking at the evidence that there is around that as well as his personal experience. But today we're looking at physical therapy and occupational therapy and being quite clinical in what we're doing and building on the experience that both Anne-Marie and Julia have got and have had over their many years of working in chronic pain. Really looking forward to it, Glenn. But before we start, I wanted to talk a little bit about a metaphor that I often use when I work with patients with chronic pain. Well, we're all trying to explain the sort of intricacies of chronic pain to our patients. Metaphors become so important. I would agree. So I wanted to talk about the passengers on the bus metaphor. Have you heard of it? Well, Conrad, it's not one I commonly use, so I'd be very interested to know what it is and how you found it useful. So the origins of this metaphor are from acceptance and commitment therapy, and ACT uses lots of metaphors. And this particular metaphor, passages on the bus, can be used to identify barriers on the way towards your goals, the things that you value and want to be able to do. What are the things that stop you from doing that? I'll tell you how it goes. So imagine I'm a bus driver. I love my bus. I take my bus absolutely everywhere. And I go home in it, I go to my work, go shopping in it, do everything. One day I'm driving along the road and there's a bus stop and there's, there's this guy waiting for the bus. He's looking really, really scary. He's got spider webs tattooed all over his face and he's wearing a long leather coat. And uh, I have to stop because it's a bus stop. So I stop and I open the door. This man comes in, looks really angry. And he says, my name is Payne. Okay, okay. Why don't you sit at the back? I'm going to sit there, right behind you. So this bus that I used to like, used to love, suddenly isn't very nice anymore. It's not really one that I feel terribly comfortable in any longer. Next bus stop, there's a little old lady standing there. And she comes in and she yawns and she says, oh, I'm tired. I'm knackered, totally knackered. 
And she sits next to Payne because they know each other very well. In fact, I think they're probably related in some way. Okay, you get to drift a little bit. You know, the next stop, Sad gets on the bus. The next stop, People Don't Understand gets on. The next stop, Panicky gets on. So this bus was a nice bus, but now it's horrible. I really don't like this bus. Horrible bus. Anyway, do you know what? I want to go shopping. There's a massive shopping centre, and I want to go for hours and hours and hours, Glenn, because I love it, absolutely love it. There's a T-junction that I'm approaching. I'm about to turn left towards the shopping centre, and all the passengers behind me start to shout. And Payne starts to shout in my ears and says, don't do it. It will be awful. And Tired says, oh, you're too tired. And Sad says, don't go. Please don't go. Just, just go back to your house. That's where you need to be. And people don't understand, says, obviously, people won't understand. And they won't understand that you need to take breaks. As I'm about to turn left, I turn right and I go back home. And the passengers won. So I wanted to go to the shopping center. I wanted to go shopping. But the passengers told me to go in a different direction. You can see where the metaphor is leading you, I mean, quite clearly. I mean, how how does that come across when you use it to the patients? I think patients quite like it. Patients quite like me being a bit silly, you know, in front of them. And I, I try to really act like a bus driver as well. But really, the serious point is that it really encapsulates my approach to rehabilitation, that we really need to try to remove barriers we can remove. But there are always barriers that we can't remove, and they continue to bully you. But we need to help children with chronic pain not to listen to these passengers in the long term. We actually published a paper on this in 2020. We did it, this particular metaphor, with 41 children, and we identified seven different barriers. And the first barrier was obviously physical constraints. Pain stops you from doing things. Tiredness stops you from doing things. Being sick and nausea stops you from doing things. The second barrier was being fed up. I've had enough of picking myself up again and again and again. And then the third barrier was low confidence and low self-esteem. And the fourth barrier was perfectionism. So some children might say things like, if you can't do things right, you might as well not do it at all. And then the fifth barrier was avoidance of thinking about it, not wanting to know about it at all. But if you don't engage with it, obviously, then pain management becomes very difficult. Then the sixth barrier is feelings. So if you feel sad, you you know, your natural response is to withdraw. A lot of children feel guilty as well. I don't want to go out shopping with my friends because I don't want to be a burden on them because I have to sit down very often. Some children might get panic attacks in class. And as a result of that, they don't want to go to school. And there are social barriers, of course, as well. Common, I guess, underlying concept of these social barriers was nobody understands what it's like. So Conrad, that was a beautiful description. Um, and I think what you've just encapsulated in that your seven barriers is what we see some combination of in every single pain patient that we meet. And it very aptly describes what we're trying to help the young people with, how, what we're having to help them deal with and break down to allow them to get back into their normal day-to-day life. And I think that very neatly leads us on to our interview with Anne-Marie and with Julia, because we're going to talk about these real-world clinical situations and how they deal with them. And I suspect a lot of the things that you've just said are things we're going to hear about. So shall we move on and go and see them? 
I'm looking forward to it, Glenn. So today we have not just one, but two special guests. And even better than that, two colleagues of mine who I've worked with for a long time and who I respect enormously. Today, we have Anne-Marie Vaness, who is an occupational therapist, and Julia Smith, who is a physiotherapist. Welcome, Anne-Marie and Julia. Hello. Hi. Hi, welcome. Nice to meet you both. I was going to start, start with you, Anne-Marie, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. We like to get to know you a little bit, so just a few questions to warm up to begin with. What's your favourite place on earth and why? My favourite place on earth would probably be my yoga mat. And so it can be absolutely anywhere, but it's my favourite place to be. And why? Because I really like yoga. (laughs) That's a brilliant reason. (laughs) Julia, same to you. Favourite place on earth and why? Um, So I've been quite lucky. I've been to lots of places, but my favourite place is probably home because that's where my family are and that's where I enjoy spending time and the people I like making memories with. Julia, what's your favourite film and why? Probably my favourite film that I've watched most recently is Rescued by Ruby and it's about a police officer and a dog and they kind of go through this journey together and I just think it shows if you've got determination, you've got grit and you've got a focus, you can kind of achieve what you want to achieve. So it's just a nice, it's based on a true story, but it's just a really nice journey they've been on together. Yeah, I like it. I like it. What about you, Amory? Oh, you know, I was really split because I've got two favourite films. One is Amelie and I just think it's one of the funniest, cutest loveliest films i like her quirkiness and i love all the little side stories especially the one about the gnome but my other favorite film is minions because (laughs) (laughs) because i nearly got asked to leave the theater with my children because i was laughing harder than anybody else there's just something about fart jokes okay that makes me and and you are happy to talk about this in an international podcast yes (laughs) yeah i feel as though you have to be honest about these things and farting is funny okay Okay, let's move on. (laughs) So uh, maybe not farting, but something that irritates you. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Ah, the thing that irritates me is not having any Marmite. Love Marmite. I can, this is really, again, another honesty moment. I can eat Marmite straight from the teaspoon. I I miss out the bread. Straight from the jar? Straight from the jar. (laughs) Yeah, I really like Marmite. Okay, I think we've just lost that internationally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm with you. I can oh. eat Marmite until the cows come home. But how about you, Julia? Something uh, irritating. Something that irritates me is when people call me Julie, because it's not my name. One letter difference, massive impact. So, yeah, that's my biggest irritation. Oh dear, I didn't just do it. <laughs> it's not uncommon, is it? I mean, no, it happens to you quite, quite a lot. I get yeah. called Jacob quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Anne-Marie, why did you get involved in pain? I started working, being interested in pain when I worked in prosthetics and I worked in prosthetics. I've been in this job for 13 years. So you've been in it longer, Julia. Mm. And I worked in prosthetics for 16 and became really interested in pain in phantom limb and just how nuanced pain can be. And that was my journey in. And so probably I've had that interest for goodness about 20 years. And it was sort of when people were just beginning to understand that pain is is not that X amount of injury means X amount of pain, that there's that it's a much more complex picture. Mm. And in, when we're working with people with phantom limb conditions, that was fascinating. So that was my journey in. What about you, Junior? I fell into the world of pain. So I came to the knock on a rotation and the rotation was rheumatology and pain and then started seeing pain patients and 
just really liked it. I liked the challenges. I liked the diversity. I liked the fact if you knew where you wanted to get, you couldn't go there in a straight direction. You had to take twists and turns and turn things upside down to, you knew what your end goal was, but getting that patient and on that end goal was, yeah, just a daily challenge. So I, yeah, that's how I got into pain. Fantastic. And just to explain that the NOC stands for the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre, which is an hospital here in Oxford. So we also like to get a recommendation from our guests about books or articles about pain. So Julia, have you got any for us? I am a really firm favourite of all of Lorimer's work, Lorimer Mosley's work. Um, I've been to a few of his courses and I just find his books, they kind of give me my foundation for understanding pain and just a way in which I can then sort of deliver that to patients so you know I just find the work that the team have done really interesting. So what do you think their central message is? That pain is there is our protective mechanism is the biggest thing and I think that's what we want people to take away is we have pain to warn us that there's maybe harm or potential harm and if people see it in that way they can view lots of different situations they're in in a different way. We spent quite a lot of time trying to debunk the pain as the thing that's you know, you've got pain, so it's warning you not to do something. Yeah. And so we're very much of, you know, you've got pain. We know you've got pain, but yeah. let's try and put that yeah. to one side yeah. and use it as a way of, you know, use other things to let you go. Don't let the pain stop you. Yeah. yeah. It's not a reliable messenger. I mean, I think that's yeah. what it is in chronic pain is that it's not that pain is, pain isn't always telling you the truth. It's saying stop when sometimes actually that's not necessarily the right thing to do in that moment and maybe yeah. challenging it. So noticing it but not letting it take over can be a useful way of readdressing your relationship with pain. So anyway, Anne-Marie, same question to you. I have to say I'm a bit of a Laura Mimosi fan as well, but the book I really like, which is a really nice one to hand out, is Pain is Really Strange by Steve Haynes, which actually does reference Laura's work. And it's just a lovely cartoon-based book on opening up, which is why I'm being noisy, um, really sort of saying that pain isn't straightforward, it's really strange, and that it doesn't behave in the way we think it does. And it just does it with a very nice, easy language in a nice cartoony way. So anyway, I was wondering, Amory might come to you first, but can you define your role in the pain management team? I can do, but I think that it's a, a we're very much a team. So there's a huge amount of overlap between physio, OT and psychology. And so sometimes if you were watching Julia, for example, you would think she was a psychologist or you might see Conrad and think he was a physio. I mean, the kind of, you know, you could play football. <laughs> I think you're playing football with patients and ping pong. It's true. Which is true. So my role, I think, is you know, traditionally OTs are interested in the activities of daily living, but that sort of covers everything in someone's life from the moment you open your eyes to the time you don't go to sleep at night, usually with chronic pain. So those are the things I'm interested in. Um, the bottom line of my role, I think I've become the person who spends quite a lot of time doing individual pain explanations. So really hoping that a child will and their family or the young person in their family really understand what their condition is and we all do that I know I'm not certainly not the only person but that becomes sort of quite a a key part of what I do I'm also very interested in um, looking at things like routines pacing school but if you you know I think we all feel the same thing really that if you don't understand your condition how can you manage something you have no idea what it's about. How can you readdress your relationship with something if you don't know how it works? If you don't have ownership over your condition and understand it, you can't challenge it in every activity of daily living. 
So that's both the two other really big areas are the aptitude of daily living. So pain stopping you being able to put your trousers on. We might focus on a splinter skill like that. Um, school is you often somewhere where there's a lot of issues around being able to maintain um, going to school or being able to concentrate in school. So I do a lot of looking at how you can be in school for the right amount of time for you and maybe build on that. And the other thing, yes, sleep is huge. So looking at what works for you with sleep, not saying you have to be in bed by eight and up at eight and no phones. It's saying, okay, so really understanding how the activities of the day feed into how you how you need to sleep and how your sleep is best given to you. And Julia, where do you see your role in the pain management team? Yeah, so like Anne-Marie said, we're very interdisciplinary um, and <laughs> part of my role is building on that pain education. So Anne-Marie sort of sets the foundation and I maybe take it a bit further looking at explaining sort of biomechanical pain and working on fear avoidance so lots of our patients have you know fear avoidance so you know, past experience has been very negative therefore they don't want to do it again so it's about exposure work and trying to kind of work through that fear avoidance with them in the moment do you want to explain what biomechanical pain is biomechanical pain is looking at how our bodies put together so our muscles joints bones how they all work together sometimes i describe it to patients a bit like an engine in your car that you know all the parts run really smoothly together if one part's not working quite as well like your cam belt or your you know part of the engine then your car doesn't run smoothly so it's looking at how do we make our engines run smoothly so i educate them around that and then look at their biomechanics so we'll do a physio assessment but that's not always at the beginning of our journey, our journey for me is education, really, and then looking at how maybe they can be more active. We talk sometimes about helping people get back to what they wanted to do, but actually some people don't want to go back. And that's something that, I mean, Anne-Marie and I have discussed recently, isn't it, mm. that actually people don't necessarily want to go back to where they were beforehand. So using that word of getting you back to doing things, I've changed it a bit to is there new things you'd like to try? Is there something you particularly like to work towards? You know, whether that's being active enough to go shopping with friends or trying a new sport or just being able to do, have the sort of fitness level to be out a day at school and meet a friend after school. So, And Julia, I know that, that you spend quite a lot of time engaging children as well before you actually dive in with exercises or with advice. Yeah. So I might spend the first three or four sessions just getting to know that person. So sometimes it's going for a walk and just having a very not face-to-face, side-by-side conversation. Sometimes that's in the hydro pool. So we use a hydrotherapy pool and that's a really nice environment. People often relax in there. You're side-by-side, it's warm, it's relaxed, and they don't see it as such things. So we're kind of at being active because we're doing stuff in the pool, but actually it's not structured physio exercise they go home with. It's just a really nice engagement session. And the big question is then, of course, kind of what well, they can do things in the physio, but can they do it on land? Well, what's your experience with that? So initially, sometimes people struggle. So they'll walk some of our CRPS patients or some some patients with maybe hip or leg pain. You get them walking in the pool and then they can't translate that necessarily onto land. But sometimes you can talk about that and say, well, when you're in the water, you're about 70% less weight bearing. So often things do feel a little bit easier in the water. And it's just about building up their confidence and then when you see them in the gym just talking about okay well this is maybe what you can do in the water and then just working through that and building up their confidence but often you find once their confidence confidence is built and they don't have a massive pain for their afternoon and walking you've broken down that barrier of walking equals pain because actually they've had a positive experience of walking so you're breaking down some of those barriers Anne-Marie, do you do any desensitisation? Yes, I do. I uh, so especially with children who've got things like CRPS we might work on desensitisation so with complex regional pain syndrome, often the area that has been affected is 
not an area that can be touched by the patient or by it's certainly not by anybody else. And so again, we we would work on a very individualized desensitization program. I would never ever do that um, activity to somebody. We talk about it. I would show them how I would do it to me and then allow them to do the desensitization for themselves. So one example would be I might use, I often use surgical nail brushes because they're they're really easy they're cheap and they're very very soft and it's something which is specific for that particular task so and we would work on brushing down towards the area never going over the area always just going to that point of stopping on the on the edge and then working our way so it's a bit like we sort of say it's a bit like an island and we make it letting the water go further and further the island but really 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 slowly Sometimes we might start in a different part of the body so the, so the child might have CRPS in their knee and we might start with brushing the top of their arms so that they can get used to the experience of doing the activity and it feeling safe in one part so we might transfer it to one else. So again, it's really individualised. You've both mentioned the interdisciplinary working and how we all take on each other's each other's roles, but is there any sort of fundamental difference you see between your roles as one an occupational therapist and two a physical therapist? So I guess I, I would focus more on the biomechanical thing. So if, you know, they've had hip pain for a period of time and they've got a limp and there are muscle weaknesses and muscle tightnesses, I will focus on that bit. But I think that comes much later in their journey. I think the first bit is very interdisciplinary with pain education, engagement, building up therapeutic rapport. And I think that works. Yeah, building on, building on, the, on like are you just alluding to really, is that their, their goals of now, I mean, sometimes you get them saying, you really love ballet. You want to go? They, 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 they say no. I hate it. I don't. No, it's not. It's not. I don't really want to be the, the the princess anymore. I've actually moved on from that. So, so working on realistic goals. I think also we've seen. Maybe it's going to come into questions later. But often people have been on a really long journey and they've got quite a strong view about what videos, psychologists, possibly OTs, not many people have met an OT, what we might be like, and so that building of a trusting relationship. Mm is really key. And sometimes we you know, sometimes uh, Julia and I will see someone together and we'll just go and sit. We've got, we're lucky. We've got absolutely beautiful grounds in the building we're in. So we might go and pick flowers in the meadow. With them, and I was doing that this morning with a child. So, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time building a rapport way before we start trying to do some intervention. And the interventions are often very based in what someone's interested in doing. You know, I don't think I very often see you doing exercises. It's much more about doing something which is relevant to the child. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people have seen physio prior because often roots are you've got knee pain, go and see a physio and they have a very MSK approach to managing that person's pain and it's not the right approach for that person. So they've been given six exercises to do twice a day, five reps they've done, it has made their pain lots worse. So their experience of physio is a negative experience. So often I feel, and people come through the pain service, I'm like four steps behind Conrad and Anne-Marie in the trust base because I'm a physio. That physio comes with a connotation of more pain. So actually I feel sometimes I've got a harder journey just to build that rapport to get them to a point where they're willing to have a conversation with me sometimes because some of them have such a negative opinion of physios just because they've been in the wrong setting for their their management, not because there's anything wrong with that physio. It just wasn't the right setting. Um, I think that a couple of really interesting things for me came up out of that conversation. The first one is a question I was actually going to ask later, Julia, because I mean, I think what you've just described is incredibly common about the child who's come through, had loads of physio before. It's been a negative experience. They don't trust physiotherapy. So what are your techniques for dealing with that child and how to engage them? 
I guess I'd probably take off my physio hat if I'm really honest. And I just put on a friendly hat, a, a hat that will just listen to them and I give them time. And I think that's the biggest thing is I just give them lots of time. I just maybe open, ask an open question and see where it goes and then go with them on that journey. Um, talk about things they like, things they don't like, anything other than physio, if I'm really honest. So the, the physio questions I learned in uni are probably far down in my treatment journey and maybe not asking about physio particularly. And so how do you take that forward then into sort of making their treatment plan? Because they will still need physio physical therapy. Yeah. I think once you've built a rapport with somebody and they're more trusting, that's when you can then attack those elephants in the room in a slightly more direct way. And you can then bring it in. It's just finding the right time. And, and those conversations just happen as they get to know you a bit more. They open up a bit more about maybe previous experience they had with physio, things they didn't like, things they do like. And then you build on there. Really, It's really hard. There's not a formula. And when I have new physios come in, they say, well, how do you cope with this situation? How do you deal with that? I don't know. It's just a feeling you get. It's just from experience. It's just a feeling of, OK, they're ready to move forward. And I can't sit here and say it's X, Y and Z. It's different for each patient, but there's just a feeling that they're ready. It sounds like engagement and trust are, are key to that. Yes, for you. hugely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think you, you've got to observe confidence that you know what you're doing and, you know, you're not worried about their limp or you're not concerned about this because in time we can tackle that. But for now, let's just get to know each other a little bit. And Anne-Marie, you said something that I just see so often about the child who doesn't necessarily want to go back to the way they were before. Yeah. Um, and, and often I think that's a really big driver of their pain experience. You know, yeah. Because yeah. we see a lot of children who succeed mm. or who have succeeded up to that point in many different spheres of their life. Yeah. But the expectations are very high on them yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, you know, pain hits, chronic pain hits children from every walk of life. It's not one particular child, but there are certainly certain attributes that sometimes children have been very successful or had a, a very big drive to do something in a particular way. And it's no longer part of who they are and it's no longer part of who they want to be. And so, you know, you can you can sometimes, I mean, I've got children, I've said, oh, you're really good at this. And they sort of make my child's eyes roll and say, mum, I haven't played, you know, the violin for three years and it, like, it squawked when I touched it sort of thing. So, you know, as a parent, you wanted to celebrate your child's greatnesses. Um, and, and obviously parents want to tell us about their lovely children because children are on the whole pretty nice. But allowing that person to, ha to have their own efficacy in that moment and be who they are. And I think that's something we're really good as a team is to not make that expectation of you have to fit into a particular mould. And just as Julia was saying, that means that when you're working with somebody, I've had exactly the same experience with, with students and with new members of staff saying, how do I do it? And it's it's about reading the person and, and just building a relationship, letting them trust you, helping them understand that you know exactly what you're doing. You know that you can help this young person have a more functional life, a life which would be less governed by pain. And that we'll find this journey together and we'll say to people, but we know we don't know you yet. You know you best. Parents know you best. But actually what we're going to do is we understand chronic pain and we're going to work together to grow on the person who you want to be. I think you see you set them maybe a, a little, not a challenge, but you set them a little task to try. And when they come back and they say they did it and it went well you see that they then are thinking, okay, well, actually what you're setting me does work and this is the right way. And then they kind of have these little wins, these little successes that then build that trust and that rapport even more. And that's when you can then really try and move things on a little bit quicker. Because I think it's about getting those little, little successes, little wins that build their confidence that you are the right team to help them. Because a lot of that is, you know, they've seen 
15 teams before us maybe you know and they don't have confidence so it's that confidence in we know what we are doing and that's the difficulty isn't it that they've seen so many people mm-hmm. they don't want to get their hopes up they're, they're actually a bit hopeless often and and what i find is that is then if you give them a strategy a kind of a tip or a kind of just a, a task to do too early on then you know you give them almost a chance to fail yeah that's, I guess, where engagement and trust yeah. come in yeah. as well. 100%. Yeah, I mean, sometimes just them being in the room with you is a huge challenge yeah. after so much disappointment or yeah. feeling as though the medical world doesn't understand who they are and doesn't believe who they are. And so just saying you being here today is, a, is, is huge and building from there. Julia, how do you think your work as a physiotherapist is different and that of other physiotherapists who work maybe more at the acute end in the hospital? It's much slower. The pace is much slower. I don't have I don't have a set number of sessions. I don't have a set amount of time. I don't have a, you know, I, it, it's just, it's much slower pace. It's not so formulated. It's not like on the ward, you've had this surgery, this is your protocol, out you go. You know, there's no protocol. There's no path to follow. Each session is different. Each patient is different. And you just go with... The flow. What about you, Emily? It's similar to, to Julia, really, is that we don't have um, six sessions when you're out. It, so there's not sort of a formula of this is what we're going to do. And it, it's not like this session we're going to do hand therapy, this session we're going to do sleep, this session we're going to do. It might be that every, you know, sometimes in a session, I think, okay, I'm going to be going in and I've, you know, we've worked out that, for example, sleep's a real issue for you. So we need to be thinking about what's going on now, working out what works working out what doesn't work, working out what changes you're prepared to make, because you said your sleep is rubbish. So, you know, it means you want it to be different. So if you want it to be different, what changes are you prepared to make? But I might go in and actually, that's just not appropriate on that day. So we do something completely different. And so being able to think in the moment about what's needed here, rather than saying, I'm going to do this. So you, you, you have to read the room really well because and I think one of the things we do have is we we can't see people forever but we have the luxury of knowing that we're not committed to just doing six sessions and gone that actually if somebody is going to benefit from the service for longer than that which is quite common we can cut you know we'll make a decision as a team that actually you'll carry on working yeah I think sorry I'd say I think also from a physio side it's very much based on function so I'm not looking for a perfect quad extension exercise I'm looking for is that functional for them are they functionally able to get up and down the stairs can they stand for long enough to make themselves a drink so it's working on those functional skills I've got really good at playing quirkle (laughs) you know (laughs) you don't know what quirkle is oh my goodness me it's a game. It's a game. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's a game. It's a game of colours, cubes and sequences. Is the way that you're working now, is it very different from the way that you were trained? At university, they do no training on pain. So you come out of university, you have your visual analogue scale, you rate it one to ten. You give you, Someone comes in, you do an assessment, you give an exercise, you see them two weeks later, you do your visual analogue scale again. How's your pain today? oh, it's down to six. Okay, my treatment's been successful. If you use pain as an outcome measure for the success of our patients, our patient success would not change for a long period of time and they'd be really demotivated. So you have to think of different ways of measuring and that is your function. Last week, they couldn't get up the stairs. This week, they've done two stairs. 
but it's looking at that function, that's your outcome. So you're very much coming away from those outcome measures, those visual analog scales that you're drummed into at university of how you rate pain, how you measure pain, and that becomes a successful treatment. That is not the case for chronic pain. Okay. What about you, Henri? I didn't have any training on pain at all. And I think that's really a real shame that I think understanding how pain operates in any sense is incredibly important to any therapeutic intervention, whether it be OTPT, psych. So I think that's a huge difference. And we were sort of taught about, you know, um, the, the, the t- a typical OT intervention, if you're working in, a, in what's in a physical field, would be getting people home from a hospital, uh, from a hospital stay on the whole, and you know, using pieces of equipment maybe to help people with their function either in the short or long term. And that's not how we work here. We're working on you being your own therapy, you being able to engage in your level of function. And so the crossover of function is huge between Julia and I. And, and with Conrad as well, because again, if you're you know, if you're avoidant of a function because because your experience has been negative and is is upsetting, then that for avoidance will feed in. So we work really, really closely in that way. Yeah, so it's it's I mean, my training was so long ago, but I know I can remember doing things like analysis, task analysis, and that's the sort of thing that we it just isn't useful in this setting. Yeah. And, and what are your feelings about adaptive equipment in pain? I think adaptive equipment when you've had an acute episode of of change of, of lifestyle or you have a condition where you, your body isn't physically capable of doing something. So, for example, if you're somebody who has cerebral palsy and you're not able to, your legs aren't able to function, a wheelchair, toilet seats, all that sort of thing is really, really helpful and it gives you more independence. Um, in chronic pain, we know that the chronic pain is there as a because your body's feeling overly threatened for some reason about a particular situation, either because your body just fancies being over, overly protective about something or because of past experiences or because of anxiety and fear. Um, a piece of equipment isn't going to help that. What we want you to do is be able to do it yourself and be able to do these things in every situation. So it's it's not that useful. So it's not something we would turn to very easily. Okay, really occasionally you might use it as a stepping stone, but that's very, very rare, and more with the FND, functional neurological disorders, rather than straightforward chronic pains. So you want to help children and families manage the pain and and yeah. become more functional rather than yeah. giving them equipment and, to do so. Yeah, because that because really I think the kind of the essence of what we do is we don't have magic wands and magic pills to say pain go away. That's when well, we all know that around around this table. What we what we're wanting that child or family to be able to do is to understand that chronic pain syndrome is is when you have a sensory process which is sort of lying to you, it's bullying you, and if you always respond to that lying, bullying message, you're never going to be able to manage it better. It's a bit, I think of it, I don't know if this is a helpful analysis, but one of my favourite ones is it's a bit like having a dog, and you've been given a dog and you can't get rid of it. It belongs to your family. Now you can have a dog that's really nice. And you can train it so it behaves. So your pain dog sits there and it can be really well behaved and you can carry on living your life alongside this dog or it can bite everyone in the room and it can bite you and stop you going in the kitchen, stop you going downstairs and stop you going to school. We can't get rid of your dog, but we can help you train it. And giving it equipment isn't 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 helpful. It just keeps the dog barking. Can I just take you back to, well, again, one of the things you said before we moved on a bit. We talked about the luxury that we have to be at a specialist centre, yeah. you know, like this, we get to see our patients more often, we've got more time with them. 
But what would your advice be maybe to the OTs and the PTs in the community who are maybe only seeing these kids for six sessions? And that's all the kids have. I think then is really to help them understand that, if, if, first of all, for you to have the confidence that you understand what chronic pain syndrome is and that you can give them, you can be very honest by saying, I know you have pain and you, you respect their pain and you acknowledge people's pain, but actually I'm not frightened of your pain. I know that your body works really well, but for some reason your central nervous system is giving you pain when it shouldn't. So I know that your body's capable of doing X, Y and Z in the long run. And I think really it's about giving that message that, and if you can give it in one setting to be able to transpose it to another, but you being fearful or unknowledgeable about chronic pain syndrome will be read straight away by the the patient. And if you go, oh, is that painful? Or, oh, it better not, then you've lost it. You have to be, it's not frightening to me. So what you're saying really is if you were given six sessions, you'd spend 90% of that just doing pain education so that patient understands their condition and doing, Yeah, and you can do it within 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 functions. Yeah. So you could say, um, so let's try standing up, let's try moving off your bed, let's try doing something. And if you're experiencing pain, talking it through, saying, well, so you're experiencing pain, tell me why you're experiencing pain, getting someone to own their understanding of their own condition. So when they're doing it in another situation you think well that if that's what it's like when you're I don't know getting on your bicycle then maybe that would be the same when you're trying to hit something with a hockey stick or making a sandwich or going to school or whatever so I would want that pain education I think and then transposing it into functions I think the other thing as well is I'd recommend that physio to refer to a specialist centre yeah because that would be my, you know, ultimately six sessions if if their chronic pain is chronic and they're not their function is significantly impacted, their school attendance is low, in the best in the world, you're not going to manage it in six sessions. And I think you're just building up that negative feeling of OT or physio. So you could do some pain education, but I would refer to a specialist centre for them to have that support and management. I, I totally agree with that, um, but that's sort of maybe the ideal world. You know, it's very difficult sometimes for these kids to get to a specialist centre or even to get to a specialist centre in a timely, timely manner. Yeah, and it might be that you can sort of nip it in the bud, you know, because often we don't see you know, the wait list for pain starting and then getting to a centre like ours or, or yours, Glenn, is, you know, often years and if you have, have good experience as an OT or a physio in the community, you might be able to intervene before it gets to a place when people are, their function is, is really impeded and you know, their socialisation is really impeded. Well, Conrad, um, that's a really good point to stop at this as we are at the moment. Uh, there's been a really fascinating interview with both Julia and Anne-Marie. Um, and luckily, we've got a lot more content because we were able to have a really long and detailed discussion. So we've decided to put that into a second podcast. So when you all have time, please tune in and listen to the second part. And if you have any feedback for us, if you want to comment on it, email us on waterpainpodcast at gmail.com or just DM me directly. And you can find me on Twitter at Conrad Jacob. See you again. See you in part two. Yep. See you next time.